I watched the ski jump. You know, they go down the massive slope and see how far they can jump. Coming from a track and field background, I thought, oh, this is awesome. Like, whoever jumps farthest wins. And then I remember as a kid being very confused and disappointed because I realized it wasn't whoever jumps farthest wins. That was like half the score. But half the score was some random dude judging how they looked jumping. From a track background, I'm like, you know, you long jump 28 feet, another guy jumps 27 feet. It doesn't matter if you look horrible. You did it. And I think that's the comparison to book selling. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Uh, not so much, Steve. There is a lot for us to talk about today. We're going to go pretty raw and unedited here. Uh, we're going to talk about failure. We're going to talk about success. We're going to talk about trying to practice what we preach, the 48-hour rule, the importance of working with people that you respect, and we are going to do it all in the context of the book that we just launched, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing, Including You. That book's got my name on it. I did most of the writing, but all of our books are really team efforts and how we put the ideas together and certainly in how we launch them. So before we get into this conversation, if you haven't yet bought the book, what are you waiting for? The book is off to a really good start. You're going to hear more about it. People are loving it. We've got countless five-star reviews. It's available on audio, on ebook, and of course, hardcover. You can get it from Amazon, Audible, Libro, Barnes & Noble, Bookshop, wherever you get your books. Uh, we really think that this book will help you skillfully navigate change in your life, whether that's in your personal life, your professional life. So please consider grabbing a copy of the book that supports the show. It supports the newsletter. It supports everything that we do. So if you haven't yet, Consider yourself uh, tardy, but better late than never. So check out a copy of Master of Change, and um, you're going to hear a lot more about why it's important today. All right, so let's dive into it. I'm going to set the stage with a little of my experience, and then I'm going to hand it over to you, Brad, to to uh, you know inform why we're talking about this right now. And I'm going to start with I am an expert at failing, only like not just failing, but getting really, really close and then just falling short. And I think this is, Brad, I'm sorry. I've cursed you. I've brought you into the fold. And let me quickly outline why I'm an expert at this. And I promise not to belabor the point. But so uh, let's go back to my high school running career. I'm most known for running a 401 mile and not running under four minutes. Again, close, not quite good enough. But what most people don't know is um, in high school cross country, as a senior in high school, I missed the national championship by one place. I was ninth when top eight went to nationals. In college, I missed the national championship in cross country by one place. Only I missed it by six one hundredths of a second. I also missed the state championship, I think, like, I don't know, three times in high school by one place. So my running career, just missing stuff, right? When I got into my coaching career, we were uh, 
third, second, third at the national championships. Just missed winning by a you know a couple places here or there, a couple points here or there. Um, I had an athlete who was on his way to winning a national championship, led 2,700 meters of a 3,000-meter race before clipping a barrier on the steeplechase, falling and missing his shot competing. Similarly, had you know many athletes who just fell short of making a world championship team or an Olympic team and um, coming short. And then we get into our riding career. You know, athletics is done. I'm thinking... The curse is behind us. And every book, it seems like, Brad, that we put out, we get excited. Our publisher is like, the people, they're letting us know they're tracking you for these bestseller lists. They're tracking you for the New York Times bestseller list. And every time I remember the first time, peak performance, we get all hyped. We get excited. We go nuts on on Twitter back in the day. And we're like, we're, we're going to be close. We're going to get the list. You know, help us buy some books. We're desperate. And we miss. And then we go through the same thing with the passion paradox. And then we miss. And then we go through the same thing with groundedness. And we just miss. And then we go through the same thing with do hard things. And I was really hopeful because our sales numbers were, every book, our sales numbers were better and better. And I'm pretty sure if just by sales, we missed it by a couple hundred at, at at the most on do hard things. But then we get to Brad's latest masterpiece, Master of Change. And Brad fails in life, but maybe not quite as closely as I have throughout my history. So I, I knew Brad was about to break the curse. Everything looked good. The numbers were significantly higher than do hard things. Brad and I, behind the scenes, went through the Amazon list of all the new books. I'm just laying it out like it is, folks. All the new books. And we go through and we're like, ah, you know, we're counting to see how many books get on the list and and where Brad's are. And, you know, we had a pretty good shot. I knew it was going to be close. But, like, the the data, at least as far as we could tell, was was pointing in the right direction. And I think the best shot that we'd had and then Brad, I'll I'll turn it over to you. What happened? Well, we didn't get on the New York Times bestseller list is the short answer. But there's a much there's a much longer answer. And I think that it's also has to do with how we define success and the things that we give power to. So something that Steve failed to mention is that Do Hard Things was an instant national bestseller. Master of Change, instant national bestseller and USA Today bestseller. Now, we have to do some inside baseball for publishing to give you all some context here. There are a couple of bestseller lists in publishing. The one that everyone talks about and the one that we keep just missing is the New York Times bestseller list. And the way that the New York Times bestseller list works is there are a couple of categories. There's general nonfiction, which is where we believe our book should live. And then there's advice how to in miscellaneous, which is, for whatever reason, where the New York Times always puts our books. Within these lists, the New York Times is looking at a couple of things. The first is sales numbers, but it's not just sales numbers. And this is actually for decent reason. What they want to do is they want to prevent people from buying 10,000 copies of their own book just to say that they're a New York Times bestseller. So they also editorialize, meaning they pick books based on sales and other factors 
that they think ought to be on the list. And Master of Change had the sales numbers to be on the general nonfiction list. It actually outsold six books on that list. We bought no copies of our own book. All the sales were very kosher. And um, they decided to categorize it as an advice how-to miscellaneous book. And it didn't have the sales to get on that list. And it fell short to three cookbooks, all of which were written by celebrity chefs with television shows on the Food Network. And it fell short to a QAnon book. And I mention this because I think that we give the New York Times list too much power as a barometer of success. If the whole point of editorializing is to try to prevent uh, cheating, fraud, and kind of like kabuki from appearing on this, yet they're going to go ahead and put a QAnon book on, uh, The Prophecy of Josiah, which argues that there is some prophet named Josiah that predicted, based on some tablets that he found, that Donald Trump would be president, that the Capitol would be stormed, that there'd be government lockdowns in a pandemic. I mean, that's literally the book. You can look it up. So we lost to that. In a way, it's kind of empowering, and it it makes me... It's an easier loss to take when you look at something like that. And then I think the real question is, well, why do we give this thing so much power? Because the book was a national bestseller, which is another list. It's all these lists in publishing, right? And the national bestseller list, I actually think, is the most important one. That just says, what are the top 25 nonfiction books based on sales when we, the committee that decides, do our best to exclude bulk orders? So again, they're trying to get around this problem of CEO types that want to say that they're a bestseller buying their own books. And when they did that, both of our books got in the top 25 because they had the numbers. Yet, I'm sitting here, and the New York Times also publishes this monthly business list. Now, who knows if they'll consider Master of Change for that? It's not really a business book, but six of the books on the business list are not really business books, and I still want it. So I think that... I hope that this rambling in this context really tees up this conversation about what we give power to, how we can care about results, but also detach for them, how even Steve and I, who write books and coach on focusing on the process, not the result, still care about the result, but also how much we've matured and how we now handle these quote-unquote failures very differently than I think that we might have when we were younger in less skillful in how we handle these situations. So I can walk you through what happened real quick that afternoon that we found out. I um, initially thought that it was going to be on the list just based on like how my editor called and then she dialed in my agent and I'm like, oh, she's totally going to tell us that we made it. And then she's like, bad news. Like you guys didn't get picked. We didn't get picked. And I went through like, you know, some version of the five stages of grief at first. I'm like, there's no way this is possible. We had the numbers, what books were on the list. And then I see the QAnon book. Well, that was a wild card. Uh, We weren't really thinking that we'd be competing with that. Um, I was pretty sad for like an hour. Uh, In the middle of the night, I woke up to pee and I'm like, man, like we, we missed. Like, how do we miss? Is this really happening? Is this a dream? And then the next morning I woke up and I got back to work and I would say, by lunch that day, it was no longer something that was uh, taking up any emotional space in my life. Uh, and if it was, it was more like a minor frustration, kind of what you can probably hear in my voice right now, not like a major downer. 
Uh, it didn't change anything about my next day. Uh, it didn't change the fact that I had a Nerf war with my son and his best friend that night. Uh, and then you move on from it. So I think in the past, it might have rocketed me down a little bit more. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing, that we've learned that, like, yeah, sometimes you're going to succeed, sometimes you're going to fail, and it's really hard to hold all of this at once, to hold the caring and the wanting the external results at the same time as knowing that it's not in your control and trying to make sure that the balance lies towards the internal work and the process while still caring about the external and then what makes it so bizarre in publishing is that it's constantly a moving target. You know, it's not like uh, the person that has the best time on the clock wins the race. It's the person that has the best time is counted by officials with random taste preferences in categories that you have no idea about. And I'll say one more thing, because we always get feedback that listeners really like the inside baseball publishing thing. So what what I I guess listen if the New York Times is going to consider Q and on books and that kind of thing we're never going to get on a miscellaneous list when cookbooks and that come out because we're just not going to sell as many copies as cookbooks which for those that are not in publishing cookbooks crush if you want to write a good selling book write a cookbook we're never going to compete with big cookbooks and we're never going to compete with cult books because we don't lead a cult so we don't have a hundred thousand people that are ready to buy our prophecy. Um. My main gripe is that we're not considered for the general nonfiction list, which is where I think our books should live. I think what separates our books from something like a James Clear, Atomic Habits, or a Mark Manson, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, is that, and those books are really good books. They've sold a lot of copies. They've helped a lot of people. But I think those books, to me, are like a pretty straightforward advice self-help book. And I think our books just include much more time in real estate on the page spent on introducing new ideas. And that's why I would say that we ought to be considered for general nonfiction. It's a conversation we had with our shared editor, our shared agent, uh, but we can't control that. You know, There's nothing that we can do to control that. And in a way, it makes it harder when you see the, the, the national bestseller numbers, and I'm sitting there looking at all the books on the New York Times general nonfiction list that we sold more copies than, and like, why don't they consider us for that list? And that's one part of me. But the other part of me is like, why am I giving power to this list at all? Like, why don't I give power to the actual BCS computer computed, not randomly categorized judged top 25 where we're sitting pretty? And I know what you're going to tell me, which is I shouldn't give power to the New York Times list, but I'll play back your whole intro where you kept talking about failure. Nowhere did you even mention that Do Hard Things was a national bestseller. So some of it is like what keeps us latched on to this bright and shiny object that's probably the wrong thing to aspire towards. So I'm going to turn it back over to you. Yeah, I mean, I think what it is is it's uh, it's holding the caring deeply because it is your work. We're also having a degree of like perspective and detaching. And the example I'd I'd give here and why this is troubling or why it's it's hard is it's kind of like when I first watched the winter Olympics. Okay. And I watched the ski jump, you know, they go down the massive slope and see how far they can jump. Right. Coming from a track and field background, I thought, Oh, this is awesome. Like whoever jumps farthest wins. Right. It's like the long jump, whoever jumps farthest wins. And then I remember as a kid being very confused and disappointed because I, realized it wasn't whoever jumps farthest wins. That was 
like half the score, but half the score was some random dude judging how they looked jumping. And I was like, what? This makes no sense. And I'm sure there's some reason for it. I don't know, ski jumping. But again, from a track background, I'm like, you know, you long jump 28 feet. Another guy go jumps 27 feet. It doesn't matter if you look horrible. If you long jump 28 feet, you did it. Like mechanics go out the window. And I think that's the comparison, I think, to book selling. It's in our mind, it's like, how many actual real books did you sell? But then, in addition, on some of these lists, there's and like the New York Times, there's some judge judging your mechanics based on some arbitrary prettiness uh, descriptor. So I think that's part of the reason I mentioned that is that makes it harder to and may, maybe harder to like take because there's no there's no like concrete. Here's what I need to do necessarily. So the example I would give is if we long jumped 27 feet and the winner did 28 feet, we would go back to practice and we'd say, okay, how do we change our approach? How do we get better so we can long jump 28 feet or 29 feet? Let's get better. But if it's some random judge and we don't get those judges' scores to understand you know, what they're judging us on, what do we have to look like? We go back to the drawing board and we're like, well, not much we can control about that. And I think that's part of the reason why it's hard to kind of wrestle with because there's no like actionable of go back. It's almost like, well, we got to go set the world record in the long jump to make sure we get on the list, even if we look like shit doing the long jump. Right. So I think that's number one is like there's that outside of our control that that is around it. And I think the other part is that, you know, you're wrestling with with status and it's external status and we're human beings and that's why we're susceptible to it. So like the big status in in book writing is like New York Times bestseller. It's just like, you know, in athletics there's there's different statuses for winning or getting selected to go to various competitions even if maybe you ran faster over you know in this competition over there there's something meaningful about getting selected same within sports like there's something meaningful about getting selected as the height in the Heisman even though if someone some other quarterback might be better you know, but for whatever reason, they don't get selected, right? There's there's just meaning behind these things. And I think what we're doing is trying to hold that, yes, like culturally, societally, everybody has put meaning on here. And we can say, we can convince or tell ourselves the story that like, oh, there's not much meaning there. And that's probably true. But it's still, you have this cultural societal pull that pulls you towards that. So I think the thing to do and the thing that we work on is not to like deny that reality that, you know, a whole industry pushes towards that, but to try and, you know, bring it back down to, you know, reality where it rightfully sits a little bit, which is, yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, other people think it's important, but in the grand scheme of things, does it does it make a difference in terms of, you know, our book no does it make a difference in terms of sales maybe minimally like arguably you could argue either side but not that big of a deal so it's like this push against it's this push against and i think 
that's where many of the things that we've talked about in the past, many of the things that we've written about are just like tools that allow us to go like push back against that cultural societal narrative to kind of bring us back to reality so that we don't spend too much energy time getting lost in this space, chasing something that probably we shouldn't chase. That's right. And I want to unpack the tools that we use because I think that's going to be really practical. But I want to double click on you being like the armchair psychologist for me. And then maybe I could do the same for you. I guess I still don't understand why we can't stop caring about this New York Times bestseller list when there is another arbiter of success, the national bestseller list, that is simply legitimate book sales. And like, isn't that all that should matter for this? Like, if you want to have a best-selling book, the goal is to sell more copies than other books in a legitimate way. Again, for people not in publishing, a legitimate way means you're not buying thousands of copies of your own book to inflate the sales number. In the publisher's weekly list, I don't know how they do it, but they're able to do that because you don't see like Don Trump Jr.'s book on that list, for example. So why can't that just be the arbiter of success? And maybe the answer, well, I'm going to stop before I, I maybe propose an answer that I'm thinking of because I asked you to analyze me. So like, why can't we just be like, great, like we hit the number one arbiter of success. We jumped farther than any other book. Well, I think we, I think it's because like you define success in multiple ways. So I think part of us does define success in terms of, hey, we sold a lot of books. It's in the hands of other people. We're helping people, you know, outside of sales, like we're making a difference in people's lives, like an individual level, because we get those emails and those responses. So I think number one is we do, we define success in that way, but we have multiple definitions of success. And but then that's the, not, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm with you on all that. We're, and that, that truly is like 70% of what drives us and some very self-serving things like financial autonomy and the ability to continue to write. But I'm talking about that other 30%, like the external part. Why not just be happy that we hit the objective metric that made us a bestseller? Like, why do we need the blessing of the New York Times list? That's my question. Yeah, and that's what I'm getting to, and I'll give you the analogy. If you know you're the best quarterback in college, or you know you're based on stats, based on wins, right? Winning the games, let's say you go undefeated, you have great stats, but you don't get that All-American award, or you don't get that designation of in the pros, like first team all pro or whatever, it still stings. And you see this from players, right? You see all, or in the NBA, to use the example, you know, you know you're one of the best. You may win the most games. You may be on the hunt for your title, but it still, you know, pisses these guys off when they don't get selected for the all-star team, right? Which you could be like, all-star team, man, you're like on a Hall of Fame career. You have, you know, you're leading your team in points and assists and you are, you're on the best team or one of the best teams and you're on the way. And yet, inevitably, guys still get upset when they don't get their reward. And logically, you could say, well, none of that matters. Like you're, you're helping your team win. And in some of these cases, you're actually winning the 
the championship, the Super Bowl, the NBA championship, the World Series, but people still hold a grudge or still to a degree get, you know, upset when they don't get this random award often handed out by random arbitrators or writers or journalists or whoever it is. And I think the same is is here. Like we assign societally, it's bigger than us. We assign, you know, organizationally, we assign meaning to New York Times bestseller that mean that meaning isn't as assigned to USA Today bestseller, national bestseller, you know, Canadian bestseller, whatever, whatever it is, right? And I would argue, it, it, you know, this is if you go over to the UK or England, their bestseller list is, I don't know, I think probably by The Guardian or something like that, right? And they probably don't care as much about, maybe they do, like New York Times bestseller over there. It's like some other arbitrator that like decides that meaning. And I think that's why, that's why for us, it's, it's hard to pull away from that because yes, we can logically know it. But culturally, organizationally, like part of the environment we're in pushes to say this is a status symbol. This is something that has meaning and value. And even if you don't want to value it that much or you turn down that alarm, like the environment we're in still signals that this is important. So it's hard to pull away from that completely. That's exactly what I was going to go to when I started answering my own question, but you probably did it much more elegantly than I would have. I think what I was going to say is like, you can try to determine how you swim, but you can't determine the waters that you swim in. And in the publishing world, like the waters that you swim in are all pointing towards this one list, even if it's probably not the best uh, or at least the most valid and reliable arbiter of of a good book uh, or a high selling book, I should say. Uh, yet if it's in the water, that's the water. So you can do your best to still swim your own race and swim your stroke, knowing that you're, you're going to be impacted by that water. And, and the one other example I'll give just to maybe get clarity is I think in, in track and field, not surprisingly, there's a great example, right? The, technically, the world championships in the Olympics in terms of your competition are not different, right? You're facing the same people. It's not the world stage. It's at the highest level. It is literally the championship, right? The same people you face in the Olympic Games are the same people roughly you're going to face in the world championship. Everyone targets it. But if you win, you know, five world championships and zero Olympics, you're going to be looked, your career probably won't be looked uh, upon as well as one guy who wins one Olympic championship and zero world championships. Even though, you know, technically you could argue, well, the guy who won five, like he might not have done it on the Olympic year, but like he beat the best of the best five times. That's way more impressive than some guy, you know, winning once uh, every four years. But again, status wise, it's not as meaningful. So it's just kind of the the waters, as you said, the waters you're swimming in just define kind of the value that is placed upon it. I'm with you. So what you're saying is that listeners should all go buy hard copies of Master of Change so that we can get on the the monthly list at the end of this month. That's right. Go do it. That way we can stop talking about it. Yeah. All right. So um, let's shift gears then to some of the tools. And I'm going to start with um, 
what I think is probably, well, the two most important tools uh, that I came across in actually researching and writing for Master of Change. And the first that we've talked about on this podcast before is this notion of diversifying your identity and having like multiple rooms in your identity house so that if one room kind of floods or catches on fire, you can go seek stability in the other rooms. So acutely, when I got the news that we didn't hit the New York Times list, at least not the the right away one, maybe we'll hit the monthly list, that's up to you listeners. But when we got the news that we didn't hit the right away one, uh, that was like a fire starting in the writer room in my house. But I still had my husband and dad room. So that night had family dinner. My mind was on the fact that I missed it, but it wasn't on it as much if I would have just sat and dwelled. Uh, the next morning, I went to the gym and I actually had a really good training session, surprisingly, don't know why, but that's the athlete room. I hung out on my front porch where my neighbors don't give a shit about my book writing. Half of them don't even know that I'm an author. That's my community room. And I think having those other sources of meaning in my life and really acutely, like in the moment, leaning into those things immediately um, stopped what could have been like a tidal wave of sadness, depression, falling into a rut and just kind of short circuited it, gave it some perspective and said, all right, like this is, this is a part of my life. And even within that part, it's just the external part. Uh, I also came back to doing the work. That's the second thing I was going to say, 24 to 48 hour rule, right? Big unexpected change in a positive or negative direction. Give yourself a set amount of time to celebrate if it's positive and grieve or be upset if it's negative and then get back to actually doing the work. So what did I do? I started pitching. I said, all right, like if the monthly list is going to be the carrot, we got three leaks. Like, let's go. I haven't been published in the Wall Street Journal or the Washington Post yet. Let me start looking up editors' names. Let me start pitching stories. So for me, what acutely got me out of that moment was leaning into these other components of my identity to give myself some perspective, find that like sense of stability. Hey, this is just a part of me. Everything else is fine. And then within that part, shifting from the external result within 24 hours to focus on the internal process and work, which is promoting this book. Uh, and I think, you know, I, as bummed as I am that I missed this instant list, I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself now that I digest this in real time. Like this all happened within 24 hours. And then it was kind of on with the show. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I, I, I think the only things I'm bad is there's some really interesting deep science behind it. I remember researching, I think it was the meaning maintenance model, which basically says that our foundational needs are kind of substitutable. So if you can reaffirm meaning in domains that are different from the domain that you get threatened in, which is like the different house house idea. So I always keep that in mind where it's like if I'm down in one area, you know, I'm just like, go do something good in somewhere else, you know, and often that is, you know, running or life or whatever have you other areas where you're, you're pretty good at. Um, I think the other part that is really important here that we haven't talked about as much is that, and there's research on this as well, is there's an interrelationship between how you win and how you lose. So, if you lose poorly, you generally win poorly as well and vice versa. So a lot of it is like getting in that habit and that pattern of how you handle wins and losses. 
So it's not just like, oh, I suck at failure. I'm going to get better at failing. It's also if you go over the top overboard and celebrate your wins for months or weeks on end and like go crazy, that generally, according to research, means that you'll you'll like go overboard on celebrating your losses, right? And if I remember correctly, there's like three patterns that researchers have found, which essentially are like balanced, I think was one. And then another was like narcissistic slash aggressive. <laughs> and then the last one is like essentially the avoidant, like giving up, you know, coping style, uh, which is like the gloom, doom and gloom despair. And what they found is like, you know, if you went that way in winning, you're going to go that way in losing and vice versa. So I think, you know, for us, it's not just, oh, we got the 24-hour rule or 48-hour rule and we're just going to, you know, whenever we lose, we're going to give us a time to get over it and then move on to the work. We also do the same things when we have successes, right? We celebrate them, we enjoy them, and then it's like, okay, I'm not going to rest on my laurels for for weeks now. I'm going to get back to doing the thing and being in the arena. So I think ultimately, and this comes back to what I talked about at the beginning, outlining all the failures I've had, is ultimately, I think, it's it's developing that pattern over time where you stop freaking out over the big losses and taking them so personally, or vice versa, you stop like getting all your validation from the win. And when you find that middle ground, like it becomes a little bit easier to handle over time. It's like anything we adapt to it. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's, um, that's a really brilliant point about how the winning and losing just mirror each other's. And it gets back to the 24 to 48 hour rule. Like there's a reason that we believe that that's true, whether you win or lose, you want to come back to, to doing the thing itself. Something else that's worth bringing up here that I just think is really interesting is how hard it is to look back 10, 15 years ago and imagine that someone told you 10, 15 years ago that you'd put a book out. That first off, you'd be a professional writer, that you'd be making a living writing books, that you'd put a book out into the world and immediately, what is it for this book? 8,000, 8,500 people would buy the book and read it the first week it comes out. And that you would be a top 25 national best-selling book. Someone told me that 10, 15 years ago, I would be like that. That's never going to happen. No way. Like that's the coolest thing in the world. And then in the moment, the negativity bias of all that's true. And I didn't, you know, I didn't get the Heisman. I didn't get the New York Times. It's just so, and I, I know this has been studied up the wazoo, but it's, it's always fascinating to viscerally experience how hard it is to shift your perspective to all the positive and being so stoked and not, not just let the negative ride it out. Because the truth is, on the whole, this is by far the most positive book launch that we've accomplished as a team that I've done individually. It's a career moment for me. Yet I'm latching on to the fact that I didn't get this one, um, and it really is, it's like a feather in your hat. Carrot always moves, man. I mean, that's that's all it is. It's We suck at satisfaction. But I think really what that tells me is you have to develop the skills to, yeah, your to, ne- move, on. to move on, right? Yeah. 
Because you're never gonna, you're never gonna. As nice as it sounds to be like, oh, just like channel 15 years ago, you and be really grateful. Like it's just not how the human brain worked. And rather than try to fight against the human brain, I think it's acknowledging this is how the human brain works. And just like you said, man, get those skills to shift because you're gonna feel sad. You're gonna feel like shit. You're gonna over-index on the thing that you missed. And you're not going to be able to reverse that, but what you can do is short circuit that process. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is, and it's a never ending process of developing those skills and refining them. And I should say the opposite occurs as well, is if you do this poorly, guess what? You're going to do it worse and worse and worse and worse over time. And you're essentially turning up that alarm where this loss means so much. And what tends to happen is that if that's the case, like the loss means so much, it hits you so hard. Eventually your brain hits like the escape button and says like, let's stop putting us in this position, like stop trying, stop doing this thing. And you, you get in kind of a rut of not able to you know, even perform or do the work or like show up on game day because there's so much, maybe this is a slight exaggeration, but there's so much like trauma held around the thing that you just go totally avoidant. That's right. And I think that it's like lowercase t trauma, but there's research on this. I mean, I talk about this with some of my coaching clients that you're a hundred percent right. Like if the pain of losing is that bad, then you're never, essentially you're never going to step in the arena again because you don't want to put yourself in a position to feel that pain. Um, or you, you undersell yourself. I mean, to me, this is like a, a very important nuance point but also so often overlooked when people struggle to rise and express their full potential, whether that's expressing your fitness in an athletic event, your intellect in the office, um, public speaking, is I think it's we talk about like being scared to win because winning could change your life. But I think more of it is being scared not to lose. And I think when you go into a situation and you know that if you lose, you're going to experience so much pain, you hold back from giving your all is a cop-out because if you give your all and lose again, you know how much it's going to hurt. And it's the cool kid in gym class that never tried. And that's like in a very easy to see example. But I think that this happens to adults all the time when it's easier to hold back a little bit because then if you fail, you'll feel better about it. Whereas if you leave it all out there, your, your guts, you spill that stuff out there and you still fail, then it hurts more and if you don't short circuit that grieving cycle, you're never going to step in the arena fully again. Yeah, the example I like to give on this is what many of us did in high school and college when it came to taking exams, right? We didn't study fully because if we got that C or B or depending on the person, then we could look at it and be like, if I tried as hard as Joe or Susie over there, I bet I could have gotten A. And it's just this self-protective mechanism to like not see what you can do because it gives you an out. It gives you a way to, you know, justify, rationalize, and and uh, and be okay. Essentially, you're you're protecting yourself, and that applies to so many things. As you said, it's it's one of the hardest things to get over as a as an adult is to be able to give it your all and expose yourself, you know, in terms of like what you could potentially do, which means that you could fall short and you have to kind of deal with that. 
Yeah, that's right. Well, Steve, is there anywhere else that you want to go on this topic before we try to bring it home and make it really practical and relevant for listeners? No, I think we've covered it pretty well from the personal to the research. Um, it's a hard thing to do. And I think the, lo- the only thing I'd say is accompany it with a lot of self-compassion because you're not going to do this perfectly. Sometimes you're going to freak out, lose poorly, you know, win poorly, and and that's okay. But you're just trying to do it a little bit better each time. All right. So then let's try to summarize here. Uh, when you have skin in the game and when you really care deeply about something, as much as you might focus on the internal process or on very clear-cut objective measures, if there is a subjective external marker of success, and that is a big part of the culture that you're in, and by culture, I mean not just societally, but I mean publishing culture, corporate culture, athletic culture, uh, figure skating culture, gymnastics culture, ski jump apparently culture, you name it, it's going to be impossible not to care about that thing. So all that you can do is try to refine your stroke to swim in those waters as best as you can, but you're still in those waters. So then when you either achieve or don't achieve your goal, especially if you don't achieve your goal, the advice to think about where you were 10 years ago and be so grateful and proud that you arrived where you are now, it sounds good, but our brain is not wired to do anything more with that than hold it as a platitude. Like We're never going to feel that because we're wired to want more. So I think the most important point from this conversation is kind of forget about that and be like, yeah, it is great. And I really wanted that thing and I didn't get it. And then the work is short-circuiting the potential spiral down into grief, despair, sadness, performance avoidance, all the things by having some tools. And then the key tools that we talked about are having multiple sources of meaning in your life. And this is almost prevention. You want to develop these sources of meaning before the crisis. So then when it occurs, you can lean into those other areas of your life for stability and support. The 48-hour rule, and we have some very literal listeners out there who have asked us, there's nothing special about 48 hours. It can be two hours, 12 hours, two weeks, a month. But essentially, you want to have some boundary to your thinking about what happened, the success or the defeat, versus doing the actual work. And by forcing yourself to come back to doing the actual work, a lot of those emotions you don't latch on to as much. And then the importance of self-compassion and realizing that part of showing up to gym class metaphorically and giving it your all is sometimes you're going to lose. And when you lose, it's going to hurt and it's going to suck. And that's part of the performance path. And during those moments, the key to being gritty and disciplined is actually being kind to yourself. Because if you're not kind to yourself, you're never going to step back in the arena again. So that is my my best chance at taking our raw, hot off the, the newswire conversation in, in trying to make it applicable. Steve, what did I miss? I think you nailed it all. So, you know, there you go. Take that for what it is. Hopefully you got some lessons from that. And, uh, you know, help Brad out. Stop making him miserable. Like, go help him get on this list so that, like, yeah, that, that 5% that is driving him nuts of not being on there, he can, he can set, be satisfied for that for probably a couple days, and then it'll be some other thing that that pops up. That's how it goes. So if you haven't yet, Master of Change, buy it wherever you get your books. If you've bought it, now's a great time to buy additional copies for friends, family members, colleagues. We are in the hunt for that monthly list. For all the reasons we talked about it, we still care. Uh, It would be an honor for me, but more so it would be an honor for the Growth Equation community 
if um, if we could just plaster all the lists because in a world of uh, QAnon books at worst and at best, a lot of hacks and quick fixes, um, it's tough to compete for eyeballs and attention. Um, and a big part of the reason we can do it at all is because of you, our community. So yes, this is important for Steve and I, but we really view it as important for the growth equation. So support our work, buy Master of Change, share it with your friends, and uh, we really appreciate y'all. So we'll catch you next Wednesday.